Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. Um, for those who may not know me, my name is Nick, and I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Fellowship Church, overseeing the youth and college ministries. And so today, we are in week three of our vision casting series, um, we're taking five weeks to start the year uh, to kind of share more about where we are as a church, what we believe, what some of our values are, and where we believe God is leading us here in this upcoming year. So I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, listened to the, the previous week's uh, messages, uh, would definitely would encourage you to do so and continue on coming in the weeks as we move forward. So this is week three of five. And so this morning, we are going to talk specifically about next generation ministry. And so throughout our time together this morning, I'm going to be using the phrase next gen a lot. And when I use that phrase, I'm referring to next generation ministry. And to clarify what I mean by that, I'm referring to next gen ministry as kids, youth, and college ministry. Okay, so when I say next gen, kids, youth, and college, kind of this ministry to the next generation. Just want you to be aware of that up front. And so before we dive into more of what Next Generation Ministry is, I first want to take a minute and paint a picture of where Next Gen Ministry is today. The bottom line is this, it's struggling. Here's what we're seeing. Nearly 75% of students are walking away from the church after they graduate. Less than 14% of students engage with the Bible multiple times a week. 60% say that religious belief is personal opinion, not objective truth. One in five students attend church weekly. One in every six students identify as LGBTQ+. Over 50% of students claim they feel hopeless often. And these are just a few of many of the realities of where we're at. And I don't share these as a scare tactic or this loom and gloom picture, but this is simply the backdrop to which we are ministering to today's students in. This is our current reality, the backdrop to which we serve. So next gen pastors, leaders, workers are scrambling to figure out what is going on and how we respond. Books are being published, articles are being written, all of these new ideas and strategies are being created. Yet, why are these numbers seemingly continuing to increase? Well, maybe it's important for us to take a moment and back up and look at the question, how did we get here? Because these struggles didn't just pop up overnight. And so before we talk about what next-gen ministry is and isn't, I want to answer the question, how did we get here? So if you would indulge me for a few minutes, uh, I'd like to put on my history teacher hat and walk you through a little bit of history. And if you don't like history, you should. And hopefully, hopefully I'll show you why. There's your first note that you can write if you're taking notes. Let me show you why. Bear with me. If you think about it, next-gen ministry, as we know it, is a relatively new concept to the church. Modern youth ministry, again, when I say modern youth ministry, referring to typical kids' youth ministry in today's society, modern youth ministry can be traced back to the late 1700s in England. At this time, many adolescents were working in the factories all week. They didn't have time to get to school or have a proper education. And so the only days they typically had off were Sundays. And a man by the name of Robert Rakus said 
uh, he saw this need and he felt led to help. So in cooperation with the local church, he began a Sunday school. Maybe you have heard that term before. A Sunday school. And in this Sunday school, they taught kids how to read, write, and understand and study the Bible. And so this concept of Sunday school grew in popularity and became one of the main avenues that churches use to minister to the next generation. And that soon trickled across the globe, even into America. And as the years went on, we saw an increase in belief in secularism, meaning separation from faith and general life and education. So more and more people drifted away from biblical teaching. And so this growing disparity led to the birth of organizations like the YMCA, who desired to continue providing opportunities for the next generation to know and study the Bible. So people began to see these disparities increase, and so organizations began popping up like the YMCA. And if you're wondering, yes, it was an organization long before a song, okay? I just want to clarify that. Now you have it stuck in your head, I'm sorry. Years later, years later, our world changed forever when World War II started. And by this time, child labor laws were now established, keeping adolescents from working long hours in harsh environments, and work wasn't as widespreadly forced. And so as World War II started, men predominantly went off to war, and then so moms began working more to provide for their families. And as a result, men were off to war, women were working more to help support their families, Adolescents now had more time because they were not working because of these child labor laws. And then on top of all that, you see an absence of parental involvement happening. And so during World War II, companies struggled to make money. So many companies found a new way to market and sell products. Youth. Companies began creating ad and marketing campaigns geared towards adolescents. And maybe you've heard this phrase, youth culture, before. Well, you can trace youth culture all the way back to World War II, which is really the birth of youth culture, this kind of subculture specifically related to adolescence. So on top of all of that, adolescents were now given these newfound freedoms to discover themselves. And so here we are, students had more freedom less parental involvement, and now more and more spotlight is being shown on the youth of today. And again, there are a ton of factors, and I'm not suggesting that this is exhaustive. I'm talking more in generalizations here. But the birth of youth culture as we know it today was really created by the desire to make money and influence our kids. Companies thought, you know what, if we can help our young people think they need these things, then we can make money, thus creating youth culture and influence. And so more and more of these issues continue to pop up, and then more and more parachurch organizations began to come about, such as Young Life, Youth for Christ, Fellowship, Christian Athletes, a whole host of other ones. And so when I say parachurch organizations, what I mean by that is Christian organizations operating beside and outside the local church. 
And so these organizations, they began to reach kids and they created new ministry philosophies with the goal of attracting and reaching students because of these new areas of ministry that are popping up. And so with an increase in the number of youth organizations, a heightened focus on the newly created youth culture and the desire to do whatever they could to reach students, local churches began to pour more time and energy and resources into what we now know to be called as next-gen ministries. And if many churches were unable to offer these ministries, they would basically try to copy or even subcontract their ministry towards the youth in light of these organizations. So churches who weren't able to necessarily keep up with the times would say, well, let's kind of subcontract our youth ministries out to these organizations because here are these organizations that are doing good work. Let's maybe let them do that and take the lead. And so all of this is happening in the backdrop of our world. And as this was happening, parents became increasingly happy, became more increasingly happy to delegate their spiritual authority to these youth workers. Families said, wow, there are a lot of organizations working with our students. You know what? Let's let them do that work. Many adopted the mindset of, look at these cool organizations and churches focused on youth. You know what? I'm going to let them take the lead. And so as time went on and all this was happening, even to this day, next-gen ministry as we know it, continued to distance itself, often unintentionally, from the family unit and the local church. Two God-ordained institutions that were originally tasked with the responsibility to raise up the next generation. And we're seeing many of the repercussions today. And I often wonder if because of the growing separation of youth kids ministry from the family unit as well as the intergenerational church body, this growing separation, I wonder if that could be part of the reason why so many students are leaving the church. Because as years went on, students were pulled away from family to do all of their kids programs during the week. The local churches said, you know what? Let's let them do that. Let's let the youth workers be the ones to really minister to our youth. And we kind of slowly push them into these boxes. And that perhaps these next-gen ministries eventually became students' church. Perhaps these so-focused, subcultured youth ministries, kids' ministries, perhaps they ultimately became their church. And so when students graduated, maybe that subtle belief was, you know what, that was my church. And so now that I'm graduated, I graduated the church. And so I know that's a lot, and it's nowhere near close to all-encompassing. I had a hard time trying to trim all of this because I'm like, oh, there's just so much that happens in history. You should continue to study it. <laughs> but this is important for us to understand because history informs our present reality. History informs our present reality. And I say all of this to bring us to the question, well, what does the Bible say about next-gen ministry? What does this look like? How is this done? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a few passages that are going to prove helpful to build a biblical framework of what next-gen ministry looks like. 
And so if you have a Bible in front of you, I would invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to start here. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Moses here is speaking to a new generation of Israelites who are about to enter the promised land. And this multitude had not really experienced the miracle at the Red Sea or heard the law given at Sinai because of continuing generations. And they were being prepared to enter a new land with new dangers and temptations. And so Moses here is reminding them of God's law and God's power. So let's read these verses. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <clears throat> and so some of you probably recognize verse 5 right away. And so Moses is reminding the people of Israel what they must do as they prepare to enter the promised land. Which is why he says then in verse 6, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I am giving you today. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly. And how do we see this commitment through? Repeat them again and again to your children. Next gen ministry, training up the next generation. And so how does this happen? Moses says, talk about it. Model these biblical truths at home when you're out and about, when you go to bed, when you get up. At all times, talk about and model these biblical truths. And I love, I'm like thinking, need a clear description? Verse 8, he says, tie these truths to your hands, brand them on your foreheads, write them on the gates into your house, and then actually on your house. Everywhere you go, make sure these truths are with you. And every place and every conversation Families are called to find ways to disciple their kids, to teach and model the truths of God's word. And if you've ever thought to yourself as a parent, all I ever do is repeat things. Well, here's some encouragement. You're fulfilling your biblical mandate as a parent. All right. So if you just get caught, all I say is over and over and over, he says, repeat these things over. So keep doing the good work. Parents are to teach their children the truths found in Scripture at all times. At home, in the car, when you're getting them ready for bed, when you're getting them up in the morning. Wherever you go, teach and model these truths. And he's reminding, Moses here is reminding parents what they're called to do and to take ownership of their God-given responsibility. As Proverbs 22 says, to train up a child in the way he should go. And so this biblical responsibility of training up the next generation in the ways of the Lord starts in and with the home. Not the youth pastor, not the youth leader, not the camp ministry, not the cool parachurch ministry, not the youth ministry, 
this biblical responsibility of training up the next generation in the ways of the Lord starts in the home. And so next-gen ministry at its very core is raising up the next generation, which starts in the family. And when I say family, I don't just mean like nuclear family, parents, because families in the Bible typically lived in these compound areas, having multiple generations living together, aunts, uncles, grandparents, all of these siblings together, living and working together in unity to train up the next generation. And so Moses gives them this mandate to train up the next generation. As you are preparing to enter the promised land, don't forget your God-given responsibility to train up the next generation. And whatever you do, teach and model them for your youth. And so now flip over a few pages now to Joshua 24. Okay, so we have this kind of calling mandate in Deuteronomy 6. Now turn to Joshua 24, just a few pages over. So Joshua 24, a little background here. After Moses' death, God uses Joshua to lead the Israelites to conquer the promised land. And that's really what the book of Joshua is all about. And so here now, towards the end of Joshua, the people of God are in the promised land. Joshua is reminding and exhorting the Israelites to continue to follow God. Moses said, as you're preparing to enter the promised land, don't forget to do these things. Joshua, now that they're in the promised land, says this in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua here reminds Israel of their command to fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness not the false idols that their ancestors continually fell for. Not those idols, but the Lord God Almighty. And I love this phrase here that he uses in verse 15. Maybe you've heard of it. Choose this day whom you will serve, which is then right after that why he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so as they stand in the promised land that God had promised them and brought them to, don't lose track of that, Joshua gives the people a choice. Will you follow God or someone else? Choose this day whom you will serve. You're going to follow God now that you're in the promised land? Or are you going to follow the idols of old? Joshua's recommendation, follow God. And I would retweet that. This is a choice that we continue to face today. Will you follow God or follow the world? It's that simple. Will you follow God or follow the world? And I'm with Joshua. I'm going to follow the Lord. 
And so Moses stressed the importance for Israel to raise up their children in the love of the Lord and to teach them faithfulness. Joshua here reminds them of that call. And now let's see if the nation of Israel took that call to heart. Turn over just a few pages to Judges chapter 2. So again, as a recap, we have Moses' mandate in Deuteronomy 6. We see Joshua recalling back to that calling that they had. And now, let's see what happened to this generation. So Judges chapter 2, just a few pages over, says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So the generation serving the Lord under Joshua's leadership, served God faithfully. Even those in Joshua's generation who outlived him, they followed the Lord faithfully. And this seems great, right? The people of God are in the promised land, serving the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness, with love. Look at the next few verses. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that had been done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And so after everything the people of Israel went through in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, wandering the desert, gaining victory, inheriting the promised land, they failed to take the call to raise up the next generation in the ways of the Lord seriously. And so to clarify, the word know here in verse 10 means to have intimate knowledge of, to acknowledge, to confess, to be acquainted with. And so when this generation says that they did not know the Lord, it's not implying that they didn't have cognitive knowledge, but rather they didn't have intimate relationship with the Lord. This generation did not love God, they did not fear God, and instead they followed and served false gods. They did the very thing Joshua said don't do. And because of their sin and idolatry, what were the consequences? A whole generation was not following after God. God became angry with the people over their sin and idolatry. God gave the people over to the nations who stole from them and captured them. God was against them, and the people were in great distress. All of this, the result of families and individuals failing to disciple the next generation. Israel's failure to disciple the next generation ultimately took part in their downfall. 
Joshua and his generation served the Lord faithfully, but they failed to pass on the faith to the next generation and look at the result. And so that generation was only the beginning of an ongoing cycle of idolatry, warning, judgment, and repentance throughout the whole Old Testament. And as you continue reading, which sidebar, I would really encourage you to read more of the Old Testament. You're going to see consequences happening over and over of what we see here in Judges 2. And so church, let this failed example of next generation ministry serve as a caution for us to take this call seriously. We have a responsibility to model and teach the next generation to know God and his great works and to have personal relationship with him. And it's one thing to simply teach young people about God, but it's another thing to help them know God, to have intimate relationship with. And we have that because of the cross. So at this point, if you're a parent, a grandparent, a family member, take a deep breath. I'm not trying to drop the weight of the world on your shoulders. Because let me say this next. You are not alone. You are not alone. Let me show you why in Titus chapter 2, and I'll have it on the screen as well. Titus chapter 2 says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And so while the responsibility to disciple our kids falls ultimately on the family, that doesn't mean that families are alone. Shockingly enough, God had a plan for that. The local church, the body. Sound familiar to last week? God's plan for that was the body and bride of Christ, the same body that Stephen was talking about last week. And so Paul, as he writes this letter to Titus, he lays out the call to teach sound doctrine, not false doctrine. And from there, he instructs older men and women to train younger men and women in the ways of the Lord. And so Paul clearly identifies the need for intergenerational discipleship. The more mature believers partnering with families to teach and train up younger followers of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of discipleship. The body and bride of Christ surrounding families as they navigate the God-given responsibility to train up their children in the ways of the Lord. The family and the church working together. Now that is a beautiful picture of discipleship, which I see coming right from Scripture. And maybe at this point you're thinking, whew, I'm glad that's what the youth ministry is for. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, this call isn't just for the pastors, the youth leaders, the youth workers. It's for all mature, godly believers. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if it just said, would the youth pastors and workers train up? Doesn't say that. 
Paul's instructions are clear. The older and mature need to take initiative in training the next generation so that the church may be built up, that Christ would be exalted and the next generation would grow into Christ-like maturity. If you want to see unity in the church, the church being built up, Christ glorified, let's disciple the next generation. And you may not be formally involved in next-gen ministry, but that doesn't mean that you're not called to participate. Psalm 71 says this, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. No matter what your age is, you are not to withdraw from the younger generation. You're actually called to lean in more. So in light of these passages that we looked at, what does that mean for us? Because this is only the beginning of this. And so what are some of the implications? Well, number one, we are called to generational faithfulness to the Lord. We have a mission and a calling to raise up the next generation in the ways of the Lord. And before we can talk about how we achieve this mission, we first need to remind ourselves that we have a mission. And that's right, Asaph writes in Psalm 78, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. So the next generation, even those yet to be born, may know the wonderful works of God. And this is why we want to do our best as a church to be intentional about how we approach next-gen ministry, rooting it in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching of God's word. Every believer is called to do this, though. And so like Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Number two, families are the primary disciplers of their children. And again, after Moses gave the people of Israel this command to love the one true God with all their heart, soul, and strength, what does he say to do next? Teach them diligently to your children. And you see... Folks, next generation ministry starts in the home, which is what Satan is attacking and what our culture is seeking to destroy. The primary role of discipling the next generation falls first to the family. And why are families under attack right now? And so this calling may seem daunting and overwhelming. It is. But thankfully, Moses gives us a discipleship plan for how to accomplish that mission through formal teaching and by setting a faithful example. And so in everything that you do, we're to do it in the ways of the Lord, not just to teach others, but to model them. And so again, biblically speaking, families ultimately are the primary disciplers of their children, not their school teachers, not their youth leaders, not their Sunday school teachers, not their tablets or their cell phones, not their friends, not the new cool hip-hop star, the sports figure. It starts with the family. But praise God that families are not alone. You're not alone. 
Because number three, the local church, the body of Christ provides a formative influence in the lives of children and students. You're not alone. The church is here to support, to encourage you, to resource you. We're in this with you. And I recognize that there are lots of students who come from homes where they're not following the Lord. And I'm thankful that the body of Christ can be there to help disciple students regardless of their home lives. And I'm beyond grateful that many people in my life have taken this call seriously because I wholeheartedly believe that if it wasn't for the local church investing in my life, I don't know if I'd be alive today. I really believe that. If it wasn't for people in the body and bride of Christ playing the role that God has given them, I don't know if I'd be alive today. And I praise God for that. And so God gives us the family unit, but in Christ, we become a part of the family of God, the body of Christ, working together in multi-generational unity towards Christ-likeness. Because the body of Christ is of all ages and backgrounds, socioeconomic status, all working together towards Christ-likeness and the glory of God. And so here are a few ways that we're approaching next-gen ministries, and these are just a few, okay. Next-gen ministry is essentially a bridge between the local church and the home. We want to support families as they disciple their kids, provide avenues for students to worship, grow, and serve, and help be a bridge builder into the local church. And what I mean by that is this. If students, if kids, youth, college students, if they see their ministry, their area, as their only church, then we failed them. If students believe their relationship with Christ is independent from the local church, then we failed them. We want to act as a bridge between the home and the church. And we want to help students gain a vision for the beauty of the bride and body of Christ. And number two, successful youth ministry helps students gain a vision for the local church. And let me share an example of this. A few years ago, I had a student who was looking for jobs all around the country. They were getting ready to graduate college and they were looking for jobs all over. And there was one job in particular that seemed perfect. Amazing pay, great company, great area. I think they got like a company car. I mean, it was like amazing. And I thought, yeah, this is where they're going. Clearly, this is the job that they're taking. But if you... Weeks later, they told me they didn't take that job. They ended up taking a job post-college with lesser pay, maybe not as ideal work as they had initially hoped for. And this kind of puzzled me. So when I asked them, why didn't you take that dream job? This was their response. There weren't any gospel-preaching, biblically-based churches in that area that I could see myself getting connected to. So I chose the other job because there were a bunch of really solid church options where I could get plugged in and continue to grow spiritually. Amen. That decision right there to me displayed next-gen ministry because they understood the role of the church, 
the beauty of the church and how God designed it for them to say, you know what, I'm going to choose a church that can help me grow and where I can find my role over just the perfect dream job. And number three, next-gen ministry helps students root their faith in Christ and not a ministry or a person. Are students' faith rooted in me, the youth ministry, the kids' ministry, Christian culture? Is their faith rooted in an organization or is it in Jesus Christ? I think this is one of the many reasons why so many students are walking away from the church because their faith was tied to a ministry and not Jesus. So when they graduate their ministry area, in their mind, they graduated church. Because students are as hungry ever to learn more about spiritual things, but yet they're walking away from the church. And why is that? And so, of course, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I hope this begins to help, help you see a better picture and how we're approaching next gen. Because next gen ministry is not glorified babysitting. It's not a subcategory of our church. We're not facilitating a Christian community center. We're not just here to entertain students. We're not here to fix students. Our next gen ministries are not the waiting area until they become part of the church. And you know what? A lot of times I hear, well, young people today, they don't want to, they don't want to study the Bible. Well, praise God, we're actually not seeing that happen in our church. Because in our youth ministry alone, we had nearly a hundred students walk through our doors this school year so far, averaging nearly 50 students a week, with about 40% of those students indicating they don't come to our church or do not go to church at all. And so our students and their friends that they're reaching out to, they're very interested in learning about God, his great works, and how to know him personally. And so if you, if you spend any time with me, you'll learn quickly that I love, I love comic books. I'm a nerd, jogger, don't say amen. <laughs> My personal favorite is Spider-Man. I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. And you're like, okay, youth guy talking about Spider-Man, about time. Well, in issue number 15 of the original Spider-Man series, there's a line written that maybe some of you are familiar with. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. Well, for our purposes today, I'd like to use this line, but adjust it a little bit to help sum up where my heart is as we consider what it means to raise up the next generation. With great calling, there must also come great responsibility. With great calling, there must also come great responsibility. So whether you're a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, single, married, we have a high calling to raise up the next generation in the ways of the Lord. And if we don't take that calling and responsibility seriously, we could easily see the next generation look like the one following Joshua's, a generation that did not know the Lord. And so just like Stephen had talked about last week, no part of the body can say, I'm not needed to raise up the next generation. No part of the body of Christ can say, well, kids, youth, and college ministry, that's really for those serving in those areas. No part of the body can say, you know, it's the youth ministry's responsibility to train up those teenagers. Because here's the reality, no part of the body 
can check out from Next Gen Ministry. Why? Because the cost is too great. And when students place their faith in Christ, they are a part of the body. Because nowhere do I read in Scripture that when students place their faith in Christ, they become junior members working their way up to the body of Christ. Friends, when students place their faith in Christ, they are a part of the body now. They're not just the church of the next generation in Christ. They're a part of the body now. And that means they have value and they have a place And we're part of carrying on that responsibility to help them know the Lord and serve him faithfully. And it's absolutely helpful to have these focused areas and times. That's why we do Thursday Night Teens and Kids for Truth, Sunday morning kids programs. We absolutely want to have areas to help them learn and grow. But if we imply that students are not a part of the church until after they graduate, it's no wonder that so many students walk away. And so let me leave you with two questions to consider. Will you take this calling and responsibility to heart? And what role might God be calling you to play in raising up the next generation? Maybe he's not calling you to serve every week in one of those areas, but maybe he's calling you to say hi to a student who walks through the doors. What role could God be calling you to raise? And because as a church, we are committed to discipling the next generation because we're not here to entertain students. We're here to make disciples. We're not here to entertain students. We're here to make disciples. And we're going to go to God's word to do that. And church, it, it takes all of us to do that. It takes each and every one of you because no part of the body can check out and say that's for the Thursday night people. That's for the Wednesday night people. We all play different areas and are in different roles. Church, we need you to train them up. Because as I work with students today, I look back in my own life and I see potential Nicks that are in high school and middle school walking through the church doors and saying, what am I doing? And I look at them and I think about where I am today and I say, praise God, because people took the initiative to share the gospel and invest in my life. And it's because of that, that's why I'm here today. Church, we need you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship. Lord, this responsibility that we have, Lord, may we do it together. That doesn't mean we're gonna do it perfectly. Fulfilling this responsibility isn't a a formula that if we do just just do all these perfect things, then it's going to end up this way. God, you call us to serve you and trust in you. And no matter what outcomes we face, we look to you for wisdom and strength. God, you've given us a responsibility. Lord, as families, as the body of Christ who train up the next generation. It's not always easy. It's not always clean and perfect. But God, may we serve you faithfully. And may we look to you through all things. And I pray that no matter what we do as a church, that kids, youth, students would know that Jesus loves them. They died for them. He conquered the grave for them and that they have a place in the body of Christ, that they have value and identity and worth. And I pray that you would use each and every one of us in our different areas and roles and gifts 
to help them see that need for a savior and to help them find a place. God, we look to you for all things and it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.